Kunti Vaishnavin ki Srimad Bhagavatam ki Shishi Radhakalachanji ki Gaur Premanandi Hari Hari Are you giving class? Okay, welcome everybody. This morning's Radha Kalachanji Srimad Bhagavatam class. I want to take a minute just thank everyone for making the festivals a grand success. It was such a pleasure to be here, see all the festivities and wonderful prasadam, beautiful deity worship. It was just awesome. Nice kirtans. And all of Krishna's loving devotees really made a difference for me. Okay, so today we're reading from the Srimad Bhagavatam, first canto, chapter number three. This chapter is entitled, Krishna is the Source of All Incarnations. We're beginning with text number 15 here. Actually, we've got 14 on the board, so I'll read that. Let's see here. Oh, yes. Okay, so it's text number 14. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Rishibir Yachito Beje Navamam Partivam Vapu Togdhemam. Oshadir viprash vipras ten hayam sa ushatama. So word for word, Rishi B by the sages, Yachita being prayed for, Beje accepted, Navamam, the ninth one, Partivam, the ruler of the earth, Vapu, body, Dugda. Melking, Imam, all these. Oshadi, products of the earth. Vipra, O Brahmanas. Tena, by. Ayam, this. Saha, he. Ushatama, beautifully attractive. Translation purport by His Divine Grace, Isi Bhaktivedanta Swami, Srila Prabhupada. O Brahmanas, in the ninth incarnation, the Lord prayed. O Brahmanas, in the ninth incarnation, the Lord, prayed for by sages, accepted the body of a king, Pritu, who cultivated the land to yield various produces. And for that reason, the earth was beautiful and attractive. Purport. Before the advent of King Pritu, there was great havoc of maladministration due to the vicious life of the previous king. The father of Maharaj Pritu, the intelligent class of men, namely the sages and the brahmanas, not only prayed for the Lord to come down, but also dethroned the previous king. It is the duty of the king to be pious Thus, look after the all-around welfare of the citizens. Whenever there is some negligence on the part of the king in discharging his duty, the intelligent class of men must dethrone him. 
The intelligent class of men, however, do not occupy the royal throne because they have much more important duties for the welfare of the public. Instead of occupying the royal throne, they prayed for the incarnation of the Lord, and the Lord came as Maharaj Prithu. Real intelligent men or qualified brahmanas never aspire for political posts. Maharaj Prithu excavated many produces from the earth. And thus, not only did the citizens become happy to have such a good king, but the complete sight of the earth also became beautiful and attractive. Shri Chaitanya Manobhistam Stapitam Jaina Bhutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadati Swapadantikam So here we're hearing a little bit about the history of the different incarnations of the Lord. It's described in the Brahma Samhita that the Lord has infinite incarnations, countless numbers of of times he's descended from the spiritual world to every planet, to every universe. You can read a beautiful detailed description of the Lord's advent um, on different planets and within different planetary systems in the Brihat Bhagavatam Rita, which has been very beautifully published by the Bhaktivedanta Book Trust. And um, the incarnations of the Lord are described to be as numerous as the waves in the sea. It's impossible to count the waves in the sea. And the Lord's energies, they're described to be as countless as the granules of sand that that, uh, make up the floor of the ocean. It's described that Krishna, one of the, his potencies is called the Achinta Shakti. It's described that the, the Lord's energies, they are um, beyond our conception, beyond our thinking jurisdiction. They are beyond our ability to, um, our, our, our uh, um, arguments or, uh, speculations or philosophical discussions. He is completely beyond the material energy, beyond the purview of the material energy. And therefore, his energies are inconceivable. Um, It's interesting that um, impersonalists, they try to accommodate the Lord's absolute nature or his inconceivable nature by um, analyzing him in terms of being void. Their reasoning is that if the Lord is one with everything, if everything is its energies, then certainly 
he would have to be one with everything. So accomplish, to accomplish that um, conclusion, to, to uh, explain their conclusion of the Lord's oneness or absolute nature, they give a simple explanation that just like two, the number two, is closer to one than ten. Certainly everyone would agree with that. So, to accomplish absolute oneness, you have to ultimately remove everything from that source. Because even if you describe reality in terms of two dimensions or in terms of two um, entities or two origins, you still have duality. You don't have an absolute conception. So they say, therefore, the Lord is ultimately one, one with everything. But even if you were to describe the origin of creation in terms of oneness, you would be left, for example, with just a single dot. A single dot. One dot. But even in terms of reality being originated from a single dot or from a single um, energetic source, there's still a background to the dot. The dot is existing upon something so that you can recognize it as a dot. So again, you're left with duality. So therefore, the impersonalists, they conclude, therefore, the absolute must be void. To be absolute, to be one with everything, they speculate and come up with this conclusion. And our Western scientists also, the Western uh, scientific paradigm also um, attempts to achieve this um, by breaking everything down into smaller and smaller building blocks. And ultimately, they describe the origin of life as a chunk of matter that has existed forever and that exploded and everything came from that. But the Bhagavatam here is describing the origin of everything in terms of personality. And that personality is superior to energy. Srila Prabhupada gives the example of um, a majestic mountain um, as a uh, manifestation of natural um, energy as a grand manifestation of natural energy. Certainly if you, you go to a national park and you see a beautiful mountain or mountain range, you know, it's certainly very um, awe-inspiring. We, we become um, overwhelmed by the beauty and the grandeur of nature. 
However, Prabhupada, he goes on to explain that even though we can appreciate energy in terms of its grandeur and in terms of its beauty and its manifestations, and its different manifestations, beyond that or above that or superior to that is our personal relationships. In other words, if you have a relationship with someone that you dearly love, you can be with that person day and night. In fact, you're always desiring to be with them and to talk to them and to engage in activities with them and um, to serve them. So, um, whereas if you saw a mountain, perhaps you could say, you could photograph it or stand on a, a lookout platform and observe the mountain for maybe 10 or 15 or 30 minutes. But you will not derive the same satisfaction as you do in a personal relationship, especially a relationship that is God-centered or that is um, based on one's spiritual identity. So here we're hearing a little bit about one of the incarnations of the Lord. You know, it reminds me, there's a beautiful place in Vrindavan, since it's Kartik, and um, um, I want to say it's Bindu Sarovara, but it's a, it's a beautiful bathing area that was built by the kings of Jayapur, and it is bordered by Uddhava Ghat. This is the, the, the grass in this area is considered to be non-different than Uddhava, the great devotee and friend of Krishna, because he desired to become the grass of Vrindavan so that the dust of the feet of the Vrindavasis could um, cover him and keep him within the, the, their ecstatic feelings of love for Krishna. But there, you'll see, there's a number of pavilions, but there's a huge center pavilion, and it's a unique architectural structure because the dome of this pavilion is cut out of a single stone that is 50 feet in diameter. can hardly imagine that, right? Our temple room's about from the back to the front here, up to the fountain, back to the... The picture of Mother Yashoda and Krishna is about 60 feet. So, say it's from the front door here to the back of the temple, a stone that large was taken, was carved into this gorgeous dome um, that even has uh, different artistic um, curvatures and, and designs upon it. And it was lifted up onto these huge pillars that are about 20 feet you know, tall. So imagine that without any forklifts or cranes or, you know, or even cutting a stone or even moving a stone that size. It's just superhuman. But if you go inside of that structure, that beautiful temple pagoda, if you look up in the ceiling, there's over a thousand incarnations of Krishna that have been painted there. So primarily we worship the ten main incarnations. The Das Avatar, Matsya, Korma, Varaha, Nishringha, 
Lord Ramachandra, Parshuram, right? Krishna Balaram, um, Buddha, Kalki. Um, so, but there are thousands and thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions of incarnations that Krishna, he appears um, to satisfy the desires of his devotees to serve him and to love him in a particular mood or in a particular relationship. And he also descends to um, perform different wonderful transcendental activities. What's unique about Krishna's activities is that they are not tainted by the um, reactions of the modes of material nature. His activities look human-like, um, but they are not influenced in any way by the material energy. Uh, Krishna, anybody who follows the directions of Krishna, they'll experience freedom from the modes of material nature, from ignorance and passion and even goodness. And their original spiritual identity and their um, original pure loving nature will manifest. Uh, it's, it's actually described that anyone who follows the directions of Krishna, um, they become freed from the contamination of the modes of material nature and um, their lives become sublime. Normally when we think about the material nature, we think about it in terms of things being auspicious and inauspicious or good and bad. This is a good person, this is a bad person. This is a good show, this is a bad show. This is a good car, this is a bad car. This is a good piece of jewelry, this is a bad design. So we're thinking always in the material energy, we, we, we interact with the material energy and we analyze the material energy in terms of things that are auspicious or, and inauspicious for us. But actually this is just a mental concoction. It's more or less a mental concoction because everything within the material energy is inauspicious because the very material energy is inauspicious. We just imagine things to be auspicious and inauspicious. Real auspiciousness is completely dependent upon full Krishna consciousness. It's dependent upon activities in Krishna consciousness in full devotion and service. So how, you know, how can we understand that? Well, basically... Um, the purpose of life is to become happy. It's to achieve ananda. In Sanskrit, the word for happiness is ananda. And ananda means um, satisfaction and joy that goes on increasing. It never um, becomes static. It never becomes um, checked by anything or anyone. It just goes on increasing more and more. It's actually described that when Radha and Krishna come together, their love is so pure and wonderful 
that their qualities begin to increase. Even though Srimati Radharani, she's incredibly beautiful and her love is pure and her artistic natures uh, is just so um, unlimited. It's just she has so many um, divine qualities, artistic abilities. But yet when she comes before Krishna, um, and even though Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead, we, he's described throughout the Vedic literature, Ishvara, Parama, Krishna, Satchitananda, Vigraha, Nadira, Adir, Govinda, Sarvakarna, Karnam, that he is the um, supreme controller of all controllers. His form is comprised of eternality, knowledge, and bliss. He's the source of everything material and spiritual, and he is the origin of everything, yet he has no origin. Or I know a beautiful verse from the Shweta Shvatara Upanishad from chapter 6, text 7. It goes, Tvam Ishvaranam Paramam Maheshvaram Tvam Devatanam Paramam Chadaivatam Patim Patinam Paramam Parastad Vidam Devam Bhuvanesham Nidam. So in this verse, it's a prayer, and it describes that, um, Oh, my dear Lord, you are the supreme Maheshvara, the worshipful deity of all the demigods. You are the supreme Lord of all lords. You are the controller of all controllers. You are the supreme personality of Godhead, and you are the Lord of everything that is worshipful. So even though Krishna, he is the origin of everything, he's the completely self-sustained, he is God in, uh, uh, substantially, even though um, he, he manifests the six divine qualities of beauty, strength, knowledge, wealth, renunciation, and fame, to an unlimited degree, when Srimati Radharani comes before Krishna, her love makes Krishna's beauty and his happiness increase. And when Radharani sees Krishna's beauty and his happiness and his love is increasing, her beauty and her happiness and her love increases. And as when they're together, their qualities are increasing unlimitedly at every moment. So anyone who witnesses that, anyone who's present when, with Radha and Krishna together, their satisfaction, their pleasure, their, their um, happiness, it goes on increasing un, to an unlimited degree. And everything in the spiritual world, world is like that. Prabhupada describes how, just like we enjoy eating sweets, very delicious sweets. Now, Mother Dulalita is making sweets for Radhakala Chanji out of the fresh farm milk that Gopal is bringing here from the, from his cows. They're very delicious. And so in the spiritual world, when you taste the sweet, the pleasure the enjoyment, the satisfaction, the taste goes on increasing unlimitedly at every bite. 
And you can eat an unlimited amount of sweets and never become, um, you know, full, never become uh, satiated. So, this is the nature of devotional service. That one achieves ananda. In the material world, we're trying to um, experience ananda. But the problem is that everything in the material world is temporary. So when we try to become happy with something that's temporary, our happiness is also temporary. And when our happiness comes to an end, how do we feel? Krishna, he describes it in the Bhagavad Gita, Kama Esha Krota Esha Rajaguna Samad Bhava. We become frustrated, we become angry, we become depressed, delusioned, bewildered, violent. So is that how life is supposed to be? Does anyone wake up in the morning planning to become frustrated and angry? Of course not. So the point is that material, so-called material enjoyment is nothing but an illusion. Maya. Something that doesn't exist. Just like a mirage in the desert. It looks like water, but when you go there, there's nothing but dry sand. So in the same way, we may endeavor to make a permanent arrangement for our satisfaction in this material world. But whatever we achieve simply leaves us miserable because it is all temporary. In fact, our achievements in the material world are the source of our distress unless and until we engage everything that we have, our time, our intelligence, our our resources, our money, our land, our family members, our community, in the service of Krishna. The example is given, and just like achievements in the material world are just like zeros, So you may have one zero or two zeros or three zeros or a million zeros. An infinite number of zeros. But they simply remain zero until you put a one in front of them. So Krishna is the one. How can I say that? Well, the... um, First of all, Krishna teaches that real happiness comes from within us. Lord Chaitanya spoke his philosophy of achinta beda beda tattva, that there is an inconceivable simultaneous oneness and difference between him and us, between the living entity and the Supreme Personality of Godhead. That sounds very complicated, but there's a very simple explanation that just like a drop of ocean water, it has all the qualities of the ocean. It's liquid and it's salty. Yet the drop is very small. It is infinitesimal. Where the ocean is infinite. So in the same way, 
being part and parcel of the Supreme, we have all the qualities of the Supreme. We are conscious, we are loving, we have intelligence. Yet, we are very, very small, whereas Krishna is infinite. We are like a sand granule, and Krishna is like all the sand that makes up the ocean, the floor of the ocean. So, But because we are um, part and parcel of Krishna, because we are part of his energy, his personal energy, his spiritual energy, Krishna has three primary energies. He has his spiritual energy, Ladini Shakti, of which we are an emanation. He has his material energy, Bina Prakriti, which is comprised of earth, water, fire, air, ether, mind, intelligence, and false ego. And then he has his parts and parcels, the Tatushta Shakti, which is this marginal energy. So the marginal energy, it's described to be just like the beach of the ocean. When it's covered by the ocean, it's considered to be part of the ocean. And when it's uncovered, it's considered to be part of the land. So in the same way, when we are covered by the material energy, we consider ourselves to be part of the material energy. This illusion within the material world, it's so complete that we think we're this body and that this material world is everything. When in fact, we have nothing at all to do with this material energy. It's only on account of our lack of Krishna consciousness that we develop an attachment to the material world. The example is given of um, uh, a disciple and his guru. So the disciple, he inquired from the spiritual master, how do I get free from my attachment to the material world? So the guru said, come to the forest tomorrow at this place and I'll show you. So when the disciple arrived there, the guru was holding around a tree with his arms and he was yelling out, let me go, let me go, let me go, let me go. So in the same way, we remain attached to the material world Primarily because we don't have a higher taste. We don't have anything better to do. Or even if we know there's something better to do, we don't take it up seriously. Just like a child, all of us have had this experience as children. Our greatest satisfaction was to go to a toy store. get toys. But now we're adults. We're no longer interested in going and buying toys because we have a higher sense 
of satisfaction, a higher sense of enjoyment. So in the same way, we have to gain a higher experience before we can give up something lower. And that comes by Krishna consciousness. Anyone who follows this program who wakes up for Mangalartik and attends the Nishringadev prayers and Tulsi Puja and who chants the rounds nicely and who attends Guru Puja or who worships the deities on the altar, it's recommended that every devotee worship the deities because we have, in our embodied state, we have a natural um, inclination to be in contact with the opposite sex, to be in contact with beauty, intimacy, friendship, love. All these things are natural. But as the Bhagavad Gita explains, that there are two natures that are functioning. There is the material nature and there's the spiritual nature. So when we say something is natural, we have to ask, what nature are you talking about? Something may be natural materially, but be unnatural spiritually. You see? Being captured within the repetition of birth and death and reincarnating through 8,400,000 species. Living in a way, Hare Krishna, living in a way that... um, we have no idea what's going to happen to us in the next life. The fear and ignorance of being um, completely under the control of, a, of higher laws. You see, it's very unnatural for the soul. It's very unnatural. But for a materialist, who either is unwilling to um, accept Krishna consciousness or who is unwilling to practice Krishna consciousness, they have no access to the, their spiritual nature. They have no access to their spiritual identity. So on account of that, they remain attached to material life. And they basically enter into a lifestyle of over-endeavoring for mundane things that are difficult to achieve with no real satisfaction except for this kind of um, psychological idea that I've achieved something, I've bought this house or I've bought this car or I've gotten this girl or I've, I've got this education. But there's really no satisfaction in those things. You see, just like you know, it's very nice, um, especially if you watch corporate psychology on television. You know the different advertisements; they can make things so seemingly so perfect and so um, you know enjoyable. It's like you'll see um, different automobile advertisements. You know where they have some beautiful, you know, engineered um, 
luxury car and they'll have some, you know, attractive man and gorgeous woman, you know, going together in the car and the car is zooming seemingly like forever in a cloud, like it doesn't even touch the ground, you know, as it moves. And, yeah, see? But all of us know, if you get out on the freeway and you're sitting like this, you're not at all comfortable, even if your seat adjusts in ten different ways. You turn on the air conditioning or the heating, you'll never get it exactly right, or you'll feel like there's not enough air, or if you turn the air outside air on, you feel like you're breathing the smoke from the cars in front of you. And what about the anxiety of having to pay for it? The monthly payments or even just the lump sum of money. Now they're selling luxury cars for $100,000. A basic luxury car. You can buy even more expensive cars than that. These supercars and different cars, you know, $150,000, $250,000, $350,000, dollars for an automobile. Let me just see. Making your car payment is a source of anxiety. Your insurance. And then watching the car slowly become old. It's like a slow death. Your first scratch, your first ding. Or watching it become filthy from road grime or from your shoes and having to clean it and maintain it and buying the gasoline, bringing it to the garage. There's no satisfaction there. It's just... A sense, it's just psychological. It's, it's, it's just a way of psychologically trying to convince ourselves that we can become happy within the material world. But really, everything in the material world is a source of misery. Everything is inauspicious. Therefore, it's described that only when a person takes up the directions and the practice of Krishna consciousness will their life become auspicious and sublime. It's interesting because the devotees try to reduce their their material um, possessions, their material, you know, endeavors, and they're much more satisfied. Like you know the famous story, right? Sanatan Goswami. He was one of the. Uh, he was practically the emperor's you know, leading assistant, right, for the whole country of India, (coughs) statesman and um, vice president. He was extremely wealthy, beautiful home. The wife is described to be more beautiful than the goddess of fortune herself. And yet, Sanatana Goswami, at a certain point, he felt no satisfaction from any of that. Rupa Goswami, same story. Raghunath Das Goswami, same story. Gopal Bhatta Goswami, same story. You can go on and on and on through the list. Not just in our tradition, in all spiritual traditions. You'll see Catholics, you'll see Jews, you'll see all of them. At a certain point, they become so disinterested in, in endeavoring for things in, in the material world because they realize, they experience that actually it's a source of misery. It's a source of entanglement. 
You literally, you have to dull yourself down to live within the material world. So the real auspiciousness that comes by taking up the directions of the pure devotee of Krishna and um, giving up this, this, this mental concoction this, uh, that somehow things are good in the material world. Nothing is good in the material world. Nothing is auspicious in the material world because the very material energy is inauspicious. How can you ever become happy when you have to die? How can you ever be happy with things that are just going to be ripped away from you? All your relationships ripped away from you. Everything that you've ever worked for ripped away from you or destroyed. That's not auspicious. It doesn't matter if your car is at 50,000, 100,000, 250, 450. You can spend a, a billion dollars on an automobile or a jet aircraft or a yacht or whatever you're dreaming about, and it'll all be ripped away from you. How is that auspicious? Everything in the material world is a source of misery. Unless it's connected to Krishna. Prabhupada, he gives the example of zeros. Material things are like zeros. So many zeros. Bank balance, one zero. Beautiful wife, second zero. Nice home, third zero. Beautiful, big education, fourth zero. Reputation, fifth zero. On and on the zeros go. But they just remain zeros. Until they're engaged in Krishna's service. Krishna's like the one. Then, all of the material things, you see, they become a source of satisfaction because they become transcendental. Have you guys ever looked at the dictionary definition of transcendental? Transcendental means something that is beyond the influence of time, something that is not under the confines of birth, growth, and death. Things that are not under the confines of a beginning, middle, and end. That's why the modern scientists, they reject God as a person. They reject God as a person because, horrible, they reject Modern, the, our modern Western scientific worldview or paradigm rejects God as a person because they say persons require time. Everything that we know of as persons require time. It requires time to think. We require time to talk. We require time to, to engage in work. We require time to eat. So transcendental means something that's beyond time. It's beyond the um, a, a beginning, middle, and end. So for something to be outside of time or be the origin of creation, something to have existed prior to this creation, prior to the, to, to the, the influence of time, 
means it could not be a person because a person requires time. So therefore they say that the origin of life cannot be a person, must be an energy. And the, material, the, 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 the impersonalists, they try to unify everything as absolute. Everything is one. We're all one. Everything is God. But to do that, they come to the conclusion of voidism. Because personality requires duality, right? We have good and bad. We love somebody. We hate somebody. We have men and women. We have all these dualities. So what the impersonalists say is that to be absolute, meaning to be one with everything, for everything to be one, absolute nature, or one absolute origin, come from one absolute origin, you have to bring things down. It's like certainly two is closer to one than ten. Right? So to be closer to oneness, you have to reduce Duality. So even if you come down to one, you're still left with one dot, right? Okay, so the dot still has a background that it's on. So there's still duality. So to come to ultimate oneness, you have to become void. And that's why they say that God is void. And Western science says that origin of life cannot be a person because a person requires time. And if something existed before time, as the origin of time, as the origin of life, it cannot be a person. So it has to be an energy. But what we're saying is that there is a transcendental personality. That means there is a a world or there is a life, there is an, an origin of life that includes personality, but is not under the influence of time. One of the things that being under not under the influence of time is, it's called trikalagya, somebody who can understand the past, present, and future. So not only is Krishna, not only is Krishna, everything, his energy, like we can all understand that, right? Like, you can see, if you go out, if you just look at the basic necessities of life, like the sunshine, right? Without the sun, we'd be frozen, we'd be dead. But has anyone created the sun? Can we have create, um, can we make a company, establish a company to recreate the sun? Or the air we breathe, is IBM creating the air? Or the wood we use for our furniture from a simple seed, a huge tree is growing. Is anybody doing that? Is anybody creating wood? Or the metal that we use for our electronics or for our vehicles? Or the simple ability to see, to speak, to think? All of this is coming to us by the arrangement of a higher transcendental power far beyond human capability to reproduce. So empirically, scientifically, we have to admit we are in contact with a higher power at every moment. And that power is controlling us, 
It's maintaining us. It's nurturing us. You can say, well, I don't see that. Well, just like you don't see the law of gravity, you can go up on this building and jump off and say, I don't see it. I don't believe in it. It still works. You can say, I don't believe in the law of karma. I don't believe in the laws of nature. But they're still working. We're struggling for our existence when we don't want to be. We're growing old. We're becoming diseased. We're having so many difficulties, so many inconveniences, so many hardships. We don't want those things. We don't want to die. But yet we're forced to die. So you can say if there's no higher power that's controlling you, but because you don't see it, but it's still working. But beyond all of that, all of this nature is coming to us for free. Right? The sunshine is free. The air is free. The ability to see, to speak, to think is free. So just like a mother or father, and a good parent, they take care of their child. They give the child everything the child needs to be happy and healthy, productive. Why? Because they love the child. There's a natural love between the child and the parent. So the same way nature is functioning on the principle of love. Everything is being provided for us. We're only falsely claiming these things as our own and exploiting one another. But actually everything is being provided freely. Water is free. Cotton is free. Food is free. It all grows freely. I remember going to Fiji for the first time years and years ago. You can see just wild um, pineapples growing everywhere, wild papaya trees, wild mango trees, wild herds of wild horses, um, you know, all kinds of vegetation. The women just carry a basket and go into the forest and collect everything they need to cook in all kinds of exotic flowers. Even when I was a kid, there was no Walmart, there were no big grocery stores, just simple farms. My mom had a basket. One guy would ride around in his truck and pick up the vegetables and come up and down the streets in our village. And my mom would buy for our home. So the point I'm making is that nature is functioning on the principle of love. We're also functioning on the principle of love. If somebody that you love calls you on your phone, what do you do? You're happy, right? Somebody you don't like calls you, what do you do? Let her ring a few more times. So the same way we're functioning on the principle of love and nature is functioning on the principle of love. So love is a quality of personality. It's not a quality of energy. So behind this nature, there is personality. Personality is superior to energy. You can be with somebody that you love day and night, but you cannot just say, go out and look at a mountain or some manifestation of energy and be satisfied. Also, we see life comes from life. We don't see life coming from matter. We don't see a dead stone creating life. So just like the sun's rays are warm, we naturally conclude that the sun is super hot. It's heating the whole universe. Nobody thinks the sun's rays are warm, the sun must be cold. 
So the same way, we're all people, and we're not people in general. We're very specific people with likes, dislikes, interests, desires, right? So are we to conclude that the origin of life is not a person? Sun's rays are warm. The sun is super hot. We are people. The origin of life must be a person, but a super person. Where does personality come from? And if we're talking about absolute truth or we're talking about science, we have to conclude every, we have to in, include everything that we see. That's the first thing we experience is that we're people and we're conscious. So these descriptions of the different incarnations, this particular verse is dealing with Pritu Maharaj. So he came to manage the earth because the rulers have gone out of control. They had lost their minds. They had started to unruly, uh, you know, started to uh, barbarously murder and pl- uh, plunder innocent people with their armies and with their power. So Krishna, he couldn't tolerate that, so he came himself to stop it. Just like if you see somebody beating up an innocent woman in the street, it's natural to try to stop the person. So we have that nature, that goodness within us because it ultimately comes from our origin, from that supreme person. So these incarnations, this is such a beautiful verse. I'm really barely touching on it here. It's really interesting here, uh, and I'll finish the class. It says here, intelligent men, however, do not occupy the royal throne (coughs) because they have much more important duties for the welfare of the public. So it's much more important for us to help one another and to help others in their spiritual life than it is to help manage their material lives. We should understand that. Of course, if people are situated properly, it's a lot easier for them to make spiritual advancement. Just like the social body is compared to be like the head or like the Brahmins or the devotees, intellectuals, teachers, the administrators are like the arms, the Vaishas are like the stomach, merchants, business people, farmers, and the working class of people are like the legs. Right? So <clears throat> you can live without your arms or your legs, or even your stomach. One of my god sisters had her stomach cut out in a because of cancer, and she could still live. But if somebody cuts off your head, you're finished. So the same way, this, the, the intelligent class of men are meant to make a sacrifice. It's not that intelligent devotees cannot rule the, the, uh, or, or be administrators or merchants or, or workers. We can do anything. A devotee can do anything. Take up any way of life. 
But we should always understand that the most important thing we can do is to help ourselves and help one another and everyone we meet to get out of the material world. We should never forget that. That's our real business. That's really what's important. Not making a comfortable arrangement in the material world, right? Like that example of making a comfortable arrangement in prison. Or making a comfortable arrangement in the transit lounge of the airport when your flight's coming. Right? Have you ever tried to do that? Find a sofa where you can lay down, get all, everything nice so you're really comfortable, you know. You might get so comfortable that you miss your flight and you're stuck in the transit lounge. So that's material life. We're getting stuck in the transit lounge again and again, life after life. But really, it's a lot nicer to get on a flight, go on vacation, get out of the transit lounge. Do you guys think transit lounges are really nice? They're pretty cool, right? Got a lot of shops, interesting people walking around, right? Maybe you can convince yourself that the transit lounge isn't that bad. But would you want to live in the transit lounge your whole life? I doubt it. I think you'd be a lot happier going to see your family and your friends and the people you love. So I'm going to end here. Thank you guys for popping in. It's really nice of you. Hope you have a great day. I don't know if you have any questions or comments, but I'm going to end here. Tomorrow is text number 15. I finished 14 today. This is about Pritu Maharaj. Um, Whenever there is some negligence on the part of the king in discharging his duty, the intelligent class of men must dethrone him. You ever feel like doing that? You guys did that in Philippines, right? You dethroned your your president. We, Prabhupada, gave uh, President Nixon when he was impeached as an example, right? He was pulled down. Are they impeaching President Trump now? Is that actually going through? Do you think he deserves to be impeached? So I'm going to end here. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Hare Krishna. Glorious to Srila Prabhupada.